0: You're far back, so I'm moving up. Is that all right? already throwing my water bottle, so you don't care what I do next to here, right? What a sweet joy to hear God's people sing and pray, worship our Lord together. It is heart-filling for our faith. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings 19. 2 Kings 19, as we continue our consideration of prayer that God wants to hear. I recently picked up a new backpack. I thought I would age out of the kind of the briefcase stage and go to the backpack stage cuz that's a cool thing to do now. So, I'm not cool, but I was trying to act like it. And uh as I was transferring all my stuff to my new bag and you know got all my stuff situated, I decided it was probably time for a new pack of gum cuz that one had been in there in the other bag for a while. So, I was like, oh, "I'll put a new one in." And uh in this uh, new pack of winter mint gum in my bag, you know, in my backpack and you know, used my backpack a few times and noticed this morning actually last night as I opened up my bag to review my sermon for this morning that everything now in my bag smells like winter mint gum. My Bible smells minty fresh, my my notebook is minty fresh, my tablet's minty fresh, even my pen and my highlighter are minty fresh. It's it's pretty astounding. It's had quite the the penetrating effect in my bag. This is a silly illustration, but very similarly, so should prayer have a penetrating effect in our lives. Like that minty, fresh scent permeated my bag, so ought also prayer to permeate every aspect of our Christian journey. As J.C. Ryle has so helpfully said, prayer is like breathing for the soul. Your soul simply cannot live if it is not praying. And so it is with joy that we lean into the word again tonight and ask for God to teach us again how to pray. And this is dangerous because it's easy to fill our heads with information about something so fundamental as prayer. It's similar to lessons we learn about witnessing, at least for me it's really easy for me to fill my head with good uh, information from good resources about how to engage lost people, put it back on my shelf and go about my merry way and never talk to a lost person. Similarly, I think it's easy for us and easy for me to think deeply about prayer, to run to scripture and, and figure it all out from there, but not actually to pray. And so I... Trust that the Lord is at work in all of us to not just teach us what prayer is or what it should look like, but to actually teach us to pray. And one of the tools that our Lord uses in the school of our discipleship is affliction, difficulty. It's one of His greatest ways to force us to our knees, to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of. Meaningless and pitiful things, and to turn our eyes to our only hope, which is the Lord our God. And so, I want to turn our attention to a prayer of desperation tonight in 2 Kings 19. The uh, logic of this series, just to set the stage for that again, is that there's obviously prayers that are more and less pleasing to God. And if a prayer made the cut to get into scripture, then as god inscripturated it and put it into his eternal word to forever stand then he must think something of that prayer he must think there's some value there right he must think it's good and that we should pray similarly and so there's a lot to learn from the prayers in scripture recorded for us when we find one of those models for our praying in 2 kings 19 as you think about the the scope of prayer in the christian's life uh, lots of different situations spur us along as we walk with the Lord to, uh, to pray. So as God blesses us and, and we're aware of, of a blessing and uh, we're given joy by the Lord circumstantially, we offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. We, we give thanks to the Lord in prayer. When someone else in our life is facing a difficult situation and we're burdened by the, the pain and the agony they face, then we offer up the prayer of intercession. We intercede on their behalf before the throne of God. When we're overwhelmed, by the majesty and the glory of God, when we uh, maybe are are at some uh, scene of nature which just overwhelms us, that our creator would be so big and so good, we can't help but our souls to declare the goodness of God to God himself, to redound his glory to his praise in prayer, prayers of adoration and praise. And when times are desperate and difficult, And we're backed into a corner by our circumstances, and we have no human way out, and things are out of our control, then we offer up the prayer of desperation. And that's what we see in 2 Kings 19 with Hezekiah in the situation he faces. These desperate situations in my life force me to pray more than any other situation in my life. I wish that weren't true. I wish I were a better Christian than that but that is just the reality. When I am pressed by the circumstances beyond my comprehension or control, I can't help but long for God to intervene. And I plead with him more then than I do in in any other situation. And I've learned, by the way, and I think you do as you get older in the faith, I've learned to start expecting God to teach me great lessons in those hardest of days and to lean into those, to, to long for God. To grow me in my faith and especially in my expression of prayer. So I wonder as we come together tonight, I, I know the answer to this question for some of you at least to some extent, but I don't know it for all of you. What are you desperate about tonight? Well, what are you facing that maybe only you know, I don't know that is is beyond you. It's got you in the corner of life and and you have no way out. You're, you're boxed in by the Lord and it is overwhelming. And crushing, your soul lays in the dust, as it were. And I know these crisis moments aren't aren't constant in the Christian life. Praise God for that. It would kill us, but they do come regularly, and they're hard. And so, what is that that you face tonight? What's plaguing your soul? And may God, through Hezekiah's example, teach you how to pray through that and about that. I want to show you five characteristics from. Hezekiah's prayer for how we should then pray in these moments of desperation. Before we get there, I want to kind of lay the scene for you because, you know, it's probably been a minute since you read 2 Kings 19 or you were sleepy as you did because you were in the Old Testament narrative and, you know, you were doing your Bible reading faithfully and trying to stay awake and, and you did, praise God, and you remember some things, but you don't remember it all, which I didn't either. So just to remind you of the scene here. Of what's going on. Hezekiah is the king of the southern two tribes of Judah, uh, and he has been described in the text as the king of singular trust, that no one trusted God. None of the other kings trusted God like Hezekiah did, and we see that on display in our text. He ruled during the conquest and the exile of the ten northern tribes, so Assyria, which is uh, Nineveh, that area up to the north, came down to conquer the world. And they were the world power at the time. Uh, Babylon was rising. Babylon would eventually overthrow Assyria. But before that happens, Assyria is the world power. They're dominating the world scene. And they've come within striking distance of Judah, of Jerusalem, by coming to the 10 northern tribes, to Samaria. And they've overthrown and and completely obliterated the 10 northern tribes. They've carried them off into exile. Uh, And now Judah is next. And it's five years later we find out, uh, after Israel fell, that now the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes marching on Judah, begins to overtake its northernmost towns and, and its outposts, militarily, wow, that's a hard word to say. Its military outposts, it was overtake, uh, Assyria was overtaking those for Judah, and it looked dire and dim. It did not look good. From a human perspective, there was no way Judah could withstand Assyria's aggression. You have your Bible open to 19. Just look at 1830. Uh, So this is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sending his officials to Jerusalem. This is somewhat of a reconnaissance mission, but it's more than that. It's a a threatening mission. It's a a calling Jerusalem and Judah into submission mission. And so he stands outside the wall of Jerusalem, and he he speaks for all to hear and basically tells them that you are all going to die if you side with Hezekiah. So you should probably just come out of Jerusalem now and give up the fight. And by the way, 1830, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He goes on to say, every other king of every other nation has already said that. And none of them have withstood. I'm here to tell you, this is like my, you know, my uh, friendly warning to you. Now's the time to get out, make peace with Assyria. We'll give you a a beautiful piece of land with a nice vineyard, and life will be good for you. So please come and join us. Don't let Hezekiah brainwash you into entrusting yourself to your God. 19.1-4, as Hezekiah hears of their verbal threats, he sends word to Isaiah the prophet, and he says to Isaiah, essentially, pray for us. Maybe God will listen to you and maybe God will spare the remnant that is left in Jerusalem. Pray for us. Well, Isaiah then, in verses 6 and 7, returns word to Hezekiah, and he says, here's what the Lord says about this. Here's the Lord's mind on this matter. Sennacherib will not have his way with you. In fact, he'll hear a rumor, and he'll return home to Assyria, where he will be killed by the sword. So at that point, Hezekiah knows, at least from The word of the prophet, how this whole scenario is going to end. And then in verses 10 through 13, the the Rabshakeh, the official from Sennacherib, returns to the king of Assyria and tells him what Hezekiah is doing, that Hezekiah uh, will not submit. And so then they send a letter to Hezekiah and basically say to him, Listen, if you resist, you will be destroyed. Don't do this. Give yourself up. Now, at this point, you're Hezekiah. What do you do? You have that letter from Sennacherib, the, the, world, the, the leader of the world power. He's overthrowing everyone who stands in his way, and you're next. But the prophet Isaiah has said to you, Yahweh God will protect you. He, The Assyrian army will not harm you. So what do you do with this letter? It's a desperate situation. It's dire from a human perspective. There's no way out. But you're attended with the promise of salvation by your God. What do you do? I think that for many of us, and I'll speak for me personally, it's easy for me in a moment like this to know that the attendant promise of salvation, whether it's a clear, direct promise of rescue from this situation, which you and I rarely have, Or just the overwhelming eternal promise of of eternal salvation and total final victory. And promises like the, the text of Romans 8. If God, who did not spare his own son, if he gave up his own son for you, will he not also with him give you all things? It's easy to take that promise for me then, and to in some way kind of spiritually sit back on my haunches and kind of just, okay, Lord, let's wait and see what you're going to do. What it does for Hezekiah, he's got the promise of the Lord, how this is going to end. The threat has been heightened in front of him by this letter. And what does he do? And this is instructive. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods but the work of men's hands wood and stone therefore they were destroyed so now o lord our god save us please from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you o lord are god alone that lays before us from hezekiah's mouth how we ought pray in the most desperate of situations it is an especially meaningful example because of what it produces. Can I use that word? The effect of that prayer. Look at verse 20 with me. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And then he goes into a prophecy all the way down to what, verse 33 34, somewhere in there, and basically denounces Sennacherib, lays him bare verbally, and then you read in verses 35 through 37 that in the night, the angel of the Lord comes and destroys 185,000 of the Assyrian army, sends Sennacherib spinning on his heel and racing for home, and which, by the way, when he gets home, his own sons kill him, just as God promised through Isaiah back at the beginning of chapter 19. So apparently, this prayer of Hezekiah pleased the Lord. Is that fair? Apparently, the Lord delighted in this prayer of Hezekiah. And in some mysterious way, God, hearing this prayer, answered super abundantly, even beyond what he had said he would do. What he said he would do through the prophecy of Isaiah was, he'll hear a rumor, he'll return home, and he'll die by the sword. That's what the promise was, right? Now he he amplifies that and does more than he said, exceeding abundantly more than all that Hezekiah could have asked or thought, I would say, wouldn't you? He sends the angel of the Lord to destroy supernaturally and miraculously 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrian warriors laying their dead bodies on the plain outside of Jerusalem for all to see. God does not mess around. And he is not to be messed with. This is an amazing answer to what I would say is a pleasing prayer to our Lord. So how does he pray? I just want to point out five truths or, or uh, characteristics of desperate prayer, which I think then please our Lord. Uh, you, might have, you might think I tried too hard at alliteration, but we'll see. Desperate prayer releases our problem. That's in verse 14. It releases our problem. We see what Hezekiah does with this letter is a display of his heart posture before the Lord. And it's the heart posture of this kind of desperate prayer. Hezekiah does not presume upon the Lord's promise to protect him. He does not read the letter and say, yeah, you know what, I know what's going to happen to this and chuck it in the trash can or burn it in the fire. Rather, he he takes the threatening letter. The threat is real. The situation is dire. From a human perspective, there's no way out. And he brings the letter before the Lord into the presence of the Lord, and he spreads it before the Lord. You know this, but let's just state the obvious. This is not Hezekiah bringing God up to speed, right? This is not Hezekiah saying, "Okay, Lord, I know you haven't read the letter yet, but here it is." This is an act of release by Hezekiah. This is this is Hezekiah turning over the situation to the Lord. This is him laying it plain before the sovereign one and saying, "I." I don't know what to do about this, but I know you do. His heart is one of total submission to the will and the ways of God, full dependence on the Lord's will and the Lord's power. And in prayer, he depends upon the Lord to work. As H.B. Charles says, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. This is Hezekiah convinced. That prayer, in some mysterious way, moves the hand of God to intervene in our situation. And he is here confessing that by laying down the letter in the presence of the Lord. He's not running around Jerusalem, fortifying the battlements. He's not making sure they have enough arrows on hand. He's not rallying his generals to make sure the men are ready for the attack. He's not shoring up the wall to make sure there's no way for them to get in. He's not making sure there's enough food in there for them to withstand the siege he's not looking for an escape hatch an exit ramp where he can escape with his top two or three officials and and start judah over in some other place no he goes immediately to the presence of the lord with the letter and lays it before the lord and says god i don't know what to do with this but bring it to you Is this exactly what what peter tells us to do he says, humble yourselves therefore unto the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting, casting, throwing, leaving them, releasing it. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. That casting idea is used in the book of Acts. when, Remember when Paul is on the ship and it's being shipwrecked and and they're near that island, and it's being battered. It, it, run, it has run aground, and it's being battered. And, and Paul says the only way we'll be saved is if we all jump off and get to land. That's the, the word is used of them casting themselves off the ship into the water. That's the idea here of casting this desperate problem before the Lord and leaving it with Him. Desperate prayer also refocuses our perspective. So it releases the problem, and it refocuses our perspective. That's what we see in verse 15. And frankly, there's nothing quite like a crisis to skew our perspective, right? Nothing quite like a hard thing to make us see things wrongly. Much like Peter, as he was gazing upon our Lord and stepped out onto the waves. And, And as the waves crashed, the crisis caused his eyes to divert from his Lord to the waves, to the circumstances. And he started to sink. We do the same thing. That's a, a beautiful picture of exactly what we do in our circumstances. We turn our eyes to the problems, and, and it's hard not to do when they're crashing all around and threatening our life and livelihood and all we care about. And prayer is one of the surest ways to refocus our hearts and our minds with what is true. Now, obviously, the Word is, but the two go hand in hand. We, we take in what is true about God in His Word, and then We, in prayer, wrestle with that truth before God in light of our circumstance. This is the essence of desperate prayer. Notice how Hezekiah prays in verse 15. Before he ever asks asks God for anything, he recounts to God the nature of God. Notice how he begins with God's relationship to his very own people, and then he expands it to the nations of the world, and then he goes beyond that to all of the universe. In other words, he is putting his problem in the context of everything that God has control over. Starting with him and his people and expanding everything he has made. He's regaining perspective, refocusing his heart and his mind as he prays to God. He says, O Lord God of Israel, O Yahweh. This is the the covenant-making name of God. God. It's the name of God he used specifically with his people. I am your God, and this is my name, Yahweh. This is how you will know me and identify me. And so Hezekiah repeats that name, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping name of God, regaining perspective that it's God who promised, Yahweh God who promised his steadfast love on these people, the ones who are being threatened by Sennacher, the ones whose very existence is promised to be uh, completely wiped out by this pagan king. Hezekiah is saying, Lord, you're the God of those people. You're the God of mercy for those people. They're yours and you own them. You're the God of Israel. And he also says, you're enthroned above the cherubim. He's speaking obviously of the the cherubim that are above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Put there as a display of, of the glorious presence of God in that place above the Ark of the Covenant. It's here in the very presence of God that the high priest would enter in once a year and sprinkle the blood as atonement for their sins on the day of atonement, on the mercy seat. And so they maintain their relationship to God at this place of mercy physically displayed with these cherubim facing one another and facing the mercy seat above which is the presence of God in the most holy place in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And Hezekiah is regaining perspective of of who it is that he's praying to. He's praying to the one who is, is clearly for his people, provided for a way for them to have mercy, for them to be provided for and blessed for by this Yahweh God. He's regaining perspective In light of this circumstance, that the God who is in control of the circumstances, the God who is enthroned above the cherubim, he's a God of mercy. He says, You're the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. He's obviously reminding himself of the prayer uh, in prayer and through prayer of the sovereign rule of God. All the affairs of men and all the world are under the thumb of this sovereign king. As Proverbs tells us, the heart of the king is like a river which is turned however it wants to in the hand of God. God has his way with the kings of the world, and Hezekiah is reorienting his noisy soul, which is beckoning him to to be anxious and worried and upset and find his own way out of the situation. And Hezekiah is reorienting and saying, no, there is but one who has power and sovereign rule over this, and it is the God of heaven. This is the power of desperate prayer. It refocuses our perspective and then he expands to the furthest extent and says you have made heaven and earth not only does he rule heaven and earth but he's the one who spoke it into existence so if the god who by the power of his word can call all things that you know and see that exist into existence then certainly this god can take care of this puny little king of assyria who's threatening their death right that's the logic here he's regaining the perspective needed as he faces the difficulty expressed in this letter. This is prayer in our desperation, refusing to let our circumstance dominate our worldview, our, our life view. Rather, fixing our eyes on Jesus and his sovereign rule and his undefeatable power, pleading with him in light of that. Then desperate prayer requests God's perception. Request God's perception. This is the one you'd be like, ah. Eh. That was a little far in the alliteration. I'll let you be the judge. Verse 16, he asks, the, asks God to pay attention. Open your eyes and incline your ear. See and hear. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Obviously, Hezekiah knows God knows all about this. He's not asking God to read the headlines and figure this out. You know, Catch up to speed, Lord. Now, that's not what he's saying. Obviously, he's... He's pleading with the Lord to incline his ear and hear and open his eyes and see. In other words, notice what's happening here. Take notice, God of heaven, Yahweh God, who's been full of mercy towards us. Notice what it is that Hezekiah asks the Lord to take notice of. This is super crucial because in in our anguish, in our desperation, we want God to, to notice things that pertain uniquely to us and maybe even only to us. And what Hezekiah asks the Lord to take notice of are the things that pertain to God. It's the mockery of the living God that is caused by this letter that he lays before the Lord. God's name and God's reputation are on the line here. And Sennacherib has essentially said that Judah's God is no different from any other nation's God. And, And when we destroy Judah, then the world will know that your God didn't exist either. Hezekiah is saying, listen, God, if you let this go, if Judah falls to Assyria, it will be known throughout the world that Assyria's God is more powerful than Judah's. And Hezekiah knows there's only one true and living God, and so he prays and asks for God's attention. Asks for him to pay special heed to this unique situation because God's glory is at stake. There's a, a key issue in our desperation and in the prayers of our desperation. What is it that is of most concern to us? What is it that we want the most in light of our affliction and our hardship? And in our affliction, our Lord is teaching us that that His glory is at stake in some way. And our prayers ought to reflect our desire for His glory to be maintained and expanded, to be multiplied and magnified through His answer to our prayer in light of this situation. As you think of the desperate situations you face, then you should pray in in light of where it is that God's glory is on the line. Where is it that the God-deniers and the God-haters are besmirching the name and the character of God in your situation? And ask God to pay attention and to take action for His own glory. And then desperate prayer recounts our predicament in verses 17 and 18. I, I love this section of Hezekiah's prayer. He is brutally honest in his assessment of what's happening in their predicament. And this is what I think right, desperate prayer should do. It's, it's prayer that pleases God. It honestly assesses the reality that is before us and it lays it before the Lord. And so he says, listen, God, truly the king of Assyria has decimated the nations around Not only has he decimated the nations and overthrown them, but he's also taken their gods and cast them into the fire. He's laid waste to their lands. Hezekiah is not filling his prayer here with needless fluff, data that God nor no one else needs to hear. He's laying before God the reality of the situation, that no other nation's been able to withstand this. Not even nations bigger and stronger than Judah have survived the Assyrian invasion. And so he is saying, from my perspective, Lord, this outlook is quite bleak. It's desperate and dire, and I have no answers. And I think God is pleased when we own that before him. And we let him know that there's nothing here for me to do. I, I can't fix this I can't solve this, Lord. If it goes the way it's been going, this is how it's going to end. That's the way it's ended every other time. We lay before him the, the desperation and the honesty of what's happening. And isn't that what wrestling with God looks like in prayer? Is, isn't this the heart of the psalmist when he says, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Isn't this Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok? pleading with the Lord for a blessing in a situation that's outside of his control and has filled him with anxiety, one in which he thinks he has control of it and the Lord shows him through the wrestling that you have no control, forces him into submission, puts his hip out of joint for the rest of his life to remind him that this limp is an evidence of your need for me, your dependence on me. This is what... I think Hezekiah is doing here. He's wrestling with God, laying before him the honest assessment of how bad it is. But notice, even in the honest assessment, I love the hope vested here. He says, Those other nations have fallen and their gods have been thrown into the fire, but he is reminded, and he, as he prays, I think, lays before the Lord the hope he has in even that situation. That these gods were thrown into the fire because they're the work of men's hands. They weren't actually real gods. That's why they're thrown into the fire. And so that stirs in Hezekiah the hope in the living God. That's what I think prayer in desperate times does as we wrestle with God like Hezekiah is. It, it brings us to the truth of the matter and then instills in us the, the only hope that true faith in the living God can have. That He is at work and will be at work according to His will and for His glory. And lastly, desperate prayer rests on God's power. That's in verse 19. It rests on God's power. It's built upon the foundation of everything else we've already talked about. Notice the request in this prayer doesn't come to the last verse. It's, it's the last thing he brings to the Lord in prayer. And I think we ought to model our prayers, not just in desperation, but in everything else after our brother Hezekiah. There, there's a lot more to prayer than just asking God for And your your request ought to be shaped and built upon and and formed by the adoration and the, the refocusing of perspective and the recounting of the problem, gaining perspective of who God is that we see in Hezekiah's prayer earlier. And that leads him finally to say to the Lord, Lord, save us, rescue us from this man's hand. Certainly no, the ultimate request of Hezekiah is not simply for the the salvation from Sennacherib's army. The ultimate request in this prayer of desperation is for the Lord's glory to be seen in the entire world. So he longs for God to answer in such a way that that God's glory will be seen and redound in the the kingdoms of the earth. That they'll know by however God answers that it is Yahweh God who is the one and true God. And that's exactly what the Lord does. That's exactly how he answered. God loves to answer prayers that the result of the answer is a display of his glory. In fact, that's the the best way he can answer our prayers. That's the best thing that could happen to us in our situation of affliction and desperation would be that ultimately God would be magnified in my life and through my life and through this situation that he would be displayed to be the great God that he is. There's nothing better you could have if he answered any other part of your prayer. This is the best thing for us and the most glorifying thing to him. And as those 185,000 dead Assyrian bodies lay on the ground the morning after the angel of the Lord passed through their camp, certainly the nations of the world heard in quick speed what Yahweh had done. And they were awed and humbled, and indeed the Lord alone was proven to be God. As we close, I think it would be wrong for us to conclude that if we simply include these elements, and I don't think any of you are going to do that, but I want to correct this before it gets out of whack. If we think this is a formula instead of a paradigm, we're going to be in trouble. So if we think this is A plus B equals C. That If I just pray this way, if I include these five elements in my desperation, then, then God is, is held by my prayer. He has to answer, and he has to work a work much like he did for Hezekiah. I, I don't know what God's going to do in your desperate situation. Obviously, his answer in Hezekiah's situation was to immediately save his people and push back Assyria and bless Hezekiah. Whatever his answer is, I guarantee you, it will be the most glorifying to the Lord. What we see here is not a formula, but an example to follow in our desperation. It's a a type of prayer that our Lord is pleased to hear when the press of affliction weighs heavy upon our soul. So are you praying this way? And and how can you pray better in light of Hezekiah's prayer as you wrestle through the hard things that our Lord has entrusted? to you. May God help us all pray better this week in light of those things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this privilege to open your word, to think deeply about it, and then to seek to grow from it. Father, help us not to be hearers only. Help us to be those who hear and then go and do. Would you make us to be people of prayer individually and corporately? And Lord, I pray for those among us who especially are feeling the press of affliction in ways that few others understand. Lord, I pray that you, as you have promised to be, would be near to the brokenhearted, that you would carry these dear brothers and sisters along through their affliction. And Father, I ask that you would teach them how you would have them to pray in light of their affliction as they wrestle with you in faith. And Lord, then would you hear and answer their prayer and Would you relieve their affliction in your time and way? But more than that, Father, we beg of you to glorify yourself through them and in this situation for your ultimate honor and eternal glory. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God's grace, Steve, you're dismissed.